Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. Even if dance isn't your thing, if you never laced up a pair of point shoes, if you never landed a pirouette, if you never even waved your hand in the air like you just don't care, you've probably still seen the work of the choreographer Fatima Robinson. She's one of the most important and pioneering hip-hop dancers. She's choreographed and danced for artists like Aaliyah, Dr. Dre, and Tupac. She choreographed the dance to everybody by uh, the Backstreet Boys. You know that one where you stick your arms out in front and you kind of do a zombie move? If you don't know, just, just ask a millennial. In more recent years, she's worked with Beyonce on the Renaissance Tour, and she is considered one of the most influential choreographers of our time, period. And that's because she sees dance as more than just moving your body. She sees it as storytelling, as a spiritual experience. And for Fatima, being a choreographer is more than just teaching dance moves. It's bringing the best out in people, making them feel empowered through movement. And now she's brought those skills to the new uh, The Color Purple film, the new film adaptation, musical adaptation that comes out on Christmas Day. So we asked Fatima if she'd come on our show to talk a little bit about the film, but also to talk about that incredibly pioneering work in dance that she has done over her career. And we were so glad she said yes. Here's our conversation. And Fatima, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. I'm really good. Um, my agents who are from Canada were so happy that I was doing your podcast. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad I paid were, them off, you know? They were like, we love him. <laughs> well, that's, that's very nice. Were you, were you a, a fan of, of the book? Were you a fan of The Color Purple? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the first movie that I remember my mom coming home when I was 13, saying, I have to take you and your sisters to see this film. It's so incredible. It's been something that has stayed with me and my sisters because of the closeness of, of Nettie and Celie. And, you know, we've um, just grown up with that same level of closeness. And, and I, I think some of it is because of the color purple. I have to say, watching this the, this new adaptation of the color purple and watching your your work in it, made me think a little bit differently about sort of my expectations of, of choreography. And I, I'll tell you mm. what I mean. Like, mm. Celie is at the center of the story. She's dealing with a lot of trauma. There's abuse and, mm -hmm. and, and sexism. And, I mean, it's a heavy story. As a choreographer, does your approach change depending on the emotions you're trying to communicate? Like, I feel like it's not mm -hmm. common that I see dance used like this to express um, sadness or trauma. Yeah, I mean, for me, first I look at the story, and the story is what drives the choreography. For example, in Hell No, when she's with her sisters and they're packing her up to go, you know, there's a there's a head roll at the end of the the um, performance where the girls all kind of gather around her, and the last sister does a head roll, and then all the dancers do a head roll. I've watched the movie around seven times and, and, he, and he gets such a 
a laughter and applause at that moment. And it's because like every black woman knows that when a woman starts rolling her neck in that way, that she is fed up and that you're in trouble. <laughs> All my life I've had to fight. I had to fight my daddy, had to fight my brothers, my cousins, my uncles too. But I never, 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 never thought I'd have to fight in my own house. Yeah, there's lots of little things that I was able to put in there that felt very right to the scene and the story and help push the story forward in a beautiful way. When, when did dance come into your life? Yeah, I started dancing at a very young age when I have two younger sisters and we would make up uh, dance routines for whenever my mom would have guests over. We were the, the entertainment. We were always dancing as kids. My mom was a majorette at Tennessee State. And my father played the guitar in the band. So it's it's a bit like a musician and a dancer birthed a choreographer. <laughs> what, what what kind of music did you dance to growing up? Oh, all the soul music. And then when I was, as I became a teenager, you know, I discovered hip hop. And that was the the most fascinating thing because it was this new sound, this new uh, confidence, this this new, just amazing music coming from, you know, the hood. And we just loved it. This beat is my recital. I think it's very vital to rock around. That's right. On top. It's tricky. It's tight. Here we go. It's tricky to rock around, to rock around. That's right. On time. It's tricky. It's tricky. It's tricky. It's tricky. It was exciting to hear that. Oh, gosh, so exciting. It was exciting to hear it and to be part of the discovery and the, the creation of it. Here's what I find interesting about that. So I, was, I, was, I knew I was talking to you today, and while I was coming to work this morning, I passed by, you know, one of, I'm sure, a million flyers in Toronto right now, but just have been my entire mm-hmm. life, which were like for hip-hop dance classes, hip-hop dance lessons, you know? And mm-hmm. and hip-hop dance is part of like dance curriculums right now. Hip-hop dance mm-hmm. is taught in performing art schools right now. Mm-hmm. What was it like back then? I mean, you started dancing mm-hmm. in, in hip-hop before it was sort of okay. Yeah. I'm so happy you asked this question because not a lot of people know uh, that in order to be a hip-hop dancer or, or learn the dance, you had to be in the clubs. Mm. And so I've always said clubs are my classroom because that's where we exchanged moves. That's where we made up moves. We entered dance contests. That was where my training took place. And it's so amazing to see hip-hop now on the world stage just taught everywhere. I mean, we used to go to places. There was a dance studio called Arthur Murray Dance Studio, and mm. they taught ballroom dance. And it was a franchise of dance studios all over the place. And sometimes we would be in certain areas, and we need to go use a, a dance studio. And it they all had the strict policy of no street shoes allowed, and we were considered like street dancers because we did hip hop. And we'd have to, you know, like rehearse in our socks and stuff like that. So it's just so amazing to see kids now 
make hip hop a part of their dance vocabulary. It must be so gratifying to see that the work you did in some of those early days, sort of like legitimizing hip hop dance has, has led to it becoming what it's become now. Yeah, it's really beautiful to see. I mean, um, and when you're in it, you don't know that you're creating it. You don't know that you're a pioneer or something that's going to be super big. How I describe it is dancing in the clubs was where I felt closer to God. I mean, look what that was my church. Yeah. <laughs> and look what dancing in the clubs gave you. I mean, the story yeah. goes that it was in the clubs that you met John Singleton, who's the director, mm-hmm. I mean, legendary director, director of films like Boys in the Hood and, and Poetic Justice. And my understanding is, is that he gave you your big break working with Michael Jackson when you were 21. Can you tell me that story? Yeah. Yeah. So we first met, we had won a dance contest, me and my dance group called Feminine Touch. And he, at the end, came up to us and was so excited and was like, I'm going to put you in my movie. And we're like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So we ended up being extras in Boys in the Hood. But years later, when he was looking for a choreographer, he kept coming up with my name. Uh, Everyone kept telling him about me. And so he's like, I know that girl. And Cole called me and uh, started explaining everything about the concept of it and it just sounded so amazing. As we were getting off the phone, I was like, yeah, yeah, I would love to do it. Uh, I said, but wait, who's the artist? And he said, it's Michael Jackson. I'm like, incredible. <laughs> so I hung up the phone and just went screaming, running around the room, you know, so excited. Do you remember when we fell in love? We were young and innocent. Do you remember? And uh, yeah, it was really awesome to do something and work with such a perfectionist at that young age. Was that a big break for you? Like, does your career change forever after your work on that video? I think it just put my name in a bunch of people's mouths, you know? And so with that, Um, I still had to go back to hip hop after that. You know, I still had to work with the same artists, the heavy D's and the Bobby Browns and people like that of the world. Um, But I just kept on plugging away, going to the clubs and meeting the artists and going on tour, dancing for people, you know, kept on. We'll be right back. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I want to skip ahead uh, a little tiny bit. I mean, as you mentioned, you keep on doing a lot of choreography, a lot of music video choreography. You work with folks like Dr. Dre and, and Whitney Houston. Um, you end up working on um, the Everybody Backstreet's Back video, right, for the Backstreet Boys? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody, yeah. 
have been in gymnasiums when I was like in grade nine <laughs> of everybody doing and I'm doing it right now and I know you can't see me but you know I have my sort of hands in the air and those claw form mm-hmm. and I'm kind of putting my head back and forth like that um, mm-hmm. a really iconic group dance sequence can you tell me a story about working on that on that video and working uh, on that dance yeah so wild um, the Backstreet Boys has sent me a video of them doing their own choreography and asking would I come to Orlando to work with them. And I was like, oh, it's something about these guys I like. So I I go there and um, we start working together and we we just hit it off. And uh, it's so funny because I cannot believe that song and that the dance became such a iconic thing but it was really a very um pivotal point for me to work with the Backstreet Boys because it was really my first introduction into pop world and pop is very different than hip-hop how do you we mean? had so much more to play with you know we had so much more money to be able to create with and I was able to really learn how to you know choreograph for the stage but understand how lighting and wardrobe and staging uh, and and set design really enhances everything that you do. And so I really um, am am so like happy they came into my life because they took my career into a whole nother direction. You also choreographed music videos for the late Aaliyah, including her hits, Are You That Somebody, Try Again, and and Rock the Boat. I mean, of, of course, as we all know, Aaliyah passed away tragically in a, in a plane crash at 22. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you if it's not, if it's, if you, if you don't mind. I mean, Aaliyah is just sort of a name and an artist and a song to me. And sometimes the thing that happens when artists pass early is that they become they become sort of like fictitious characters. You know, they mm-hmm. become sort of larger, larger than than life. As someone who knew her. Mm-hmm. What was she, what was she like? She was wonderful. She was. It was when we met. Um, I've never aspired to be an artist. I love giving it to people and watching them shine. But it was something about when we danced together. It felt like synchronized swimming. And I just, if I were ever an artist, it would have. I would want to be like Aaliyah. kind she was such a just a wonderful person who didn't allow the industry to change her or anything she pretty stayed consistently lovely you know and we just had so much fun together and it was really amazing um watching her grow and seeing also um just the potential that kept coming from her you know she was just so talented and, uh, you know, we do movies and she would knock that out the park. And then we do, you know, 
bigger music videos and she would knock that out the park. She just was so talented. God, as you say that, it really just strikes me that everything she did and she was just 22. Yeah. It's, I can't even, ah, it's a lot, yeah. lot to think about. Yeah. There was, there was so much more to get from her, you know? Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to skip ahead again. I loved your work on, um, I know you did two Super Bowls, but I, I, I loved your work on the, on the big hip hop Super Bowl. Yes. Uh, the one with, I mean, for people who didn't see this, it's uh, Dr. Dre, 50 Cent, uh, Snoop Dogg, mm-hmm. Eminem, Mary J. Blige, Kendrick Lamar. Wasn't it? Yeah, 50 Cent was like upside down at the beginning of his performance. Um, anyway. Yeah. It was it was so great, Fatima. I, I mean, I, I, I like every, I was born in the late 80s, so I would, that's the music of my childhood. I was just so glued to the TV for that yeah. one. Yeah. I mean, that was awesome. Dre called me out the blue and was like, you know, I'll be up here thinking, like, I know Dre. It's like, I got an idea. I'm like, hit me with it. I'm thinking about doing the Super Bowl. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> da, 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 da. It's the one and only D-R-E. Dr. Dre, you little busters. Da, 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 da. You know I'm riding with the D-O-G. West Coast makes some noise. But being able to work with those artists in particular, all I had worked with before in their different parts of their um, career, was just amazing. I heard you were the one who talked Dr. Dre into playing piano. I did. I was like, you gotta do it. <laughs> he said, even just thinking about it gives me butterflies. And I'm like, that's good. That's fear. <laughs> and that's okay. We're gonna let fear be here with us. Fear can sit in the back seat, but he can't drive the car. I just reiterated how important it was for young people to see him as a musician as well, not just a producer and rapper, but understand that he plays an instrument. I think it's very important to have a nephew who's seven years old who plays the piano. And I just thought like if he could see Dr. Dre on such a world stage playing the piano, it would only encourage him to keep taking lessons and play. That's part of why people hire me. Not just the dance steps and the the moves, but because I bring a lot more to the table. I pull out what people naturally have and and give them permission to do it. Dr. Dre is the name. I'm ahead of my game. Still puffing my leaf. Still with the beats. Still not loving police. Still rock my khakis with a cuff and a crease. Still got love for the streets. Repping 213. Still the beat. It strikes me one of the first things we talked about was how when you were starting out, you know, in 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 hip hop dance, it was this like it wasn't this legitimate form. It wasn't being taught in performing arts mm-hmm. schools. Hip hop was not being covered by the mainstream press. There weren't a lot of black radio stations. There weren't a lot of hip hop radio stations, especially here in in mm-hmm. Canada. And for someone who's been working on hip hop since almost the beginning, to have it be part of the Super Bowl, pretty much the biggest TV event of, you know, the the year, the one thing that everybody watches, it must have been very yeah. meaningful to you on that level. Oh, so meaningful. I mean, it was like, look at hip hop now. Look what we've done. You know, I've the journey from the beginnings when, I mean, I used to dance for a rapper, Big Daddy Kane, and they would build us stages and uh, on high school football fields and Jay-Z was his hype man. And and I would dance, you know, <laughs> be on stages with them to like 
now we're here. We couldn't even imagine as young kids, 18, 19, being where we are now. It's just like, what? It's incredible. When you say that Jay-Z was, was a big, big Daddy Kane's hype man, you, mm-hmm. you've been around a while. Did you, did you get a sense off of him even then that like, oh, this kid's going to be big? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. You, you knew the ones who had the potential. The smart ones, the you know, I was around Tupac. Um, I did California Love. California Love. Yeah, little little videos, by the way, Fatima. Barely, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> you knew you were around geniuses, you know. At the time, they were um, young people. We were all just figuring it out, and uh, but yeah. And, and even there's times where Jay and I were sitting there uh, waiting for the renaissance to start or, you know, for a run through to happen. And, you know, we take a look at each other like, look at us now. <laughs> <laughs> look, where, look where we made it. Wow. The Renaissance, huge reaction from Beyonce fans. People have said it's life-changing. It's unlike anything anyone's ever seen. It's one of the highest-grossing tours in history. But what I think doesn't get talked about a lot is that it was Beyonce's sort of big comeback after a few years away. So what kind of conversations were were you two having about how you wanted this this to look? Well, I have to say that Renaissance was the brainchild of her. Like, you know, it was – she had so much time during the pandemic to really – sit down and understand where she wanted to, what music she wanted to do next and uh, where she wanted to go and visually what she wanted to portray. And she said, you know, uh, I have to put this tour together and I have a lot of ideas. Would you come on and help me, you know, bring them to life? And so I have to say that choreographing for the for tours is one of my favorite things that I do. Watching 80,000 people, you know, be affected by what you put together is, is so amazing and gratifying. Yeah, it's, 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 it's storytelling for 80,000 people. Yeah. And it's controlling their emotions. Yeah. And it, when it, my first concert that I went to was the Jackson 5. And I sat way, way at the top, way up there. And I was screaming and laughing and singing my heart out. And yeah, I just remember how much fun I had. And so every time I'm putting t- together a show like that, I always look to the very, very top to see if that person is singing and dancing and jumping and having a good time. And I know that I've done my job right. Fatima Robinson was my guest. Uh, The legendary choreographer worked on the new film adaptation of The Color Purple that opens in theaters on Christmas Day. The other uh, episode up on our podcast today is my conversation with the poet Sabrina Benayme, one of the biggest poets on the internet. Uh, And she'll be here to tell you why she's kind of tired of people calling her that depression girl and what she's going to do about it. All right, go check that out. See you soon. Later on. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.